This is a Reconstructionist Radio production. Please visit GaryNorth.com slash freebooks for a free downloadable copy in PDF form of this book. Productive Christians in an Age of Guilt Manipulators, A Biblical Response to Ronald J. Sider by David Chilton, published by Institute for Christian Economics, Tyler, Texas, Copyright 1981. Part 1. Biblical Law and the Cider Thesis. I don't want to have secular penalties exercised by the state for people who commit adultery or homosexual sins. People need to be free to make choices in that area. Ronald Cider, The Wittenberg Door, October-November 1979, page 16. If if there is a man who commits adultery with another man's wife, one who commits adultery with his friend's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. If there is a man who lies with a male as those who lie with a woman, both of them have committed a detestable act, they shall surely be put to death. Leviticus 20, 10, and 13. Chapter 1. Biblical Law and Christian Economics Does Ronald Sider believe that biblical standards of law and justice are normative today? A superficial reading of his books and articles would seem to indicate that this is the case. Sider often cites what he regards as biblical evidence for his thesis. His latest book, Cry Justice, is in fact almost entirely made up of biblical quotations. He refers to such biblical laws as the Jubilee, the Sabbath, and the sabbatical year, the tithe, gleaning, and restitution. Moreover, he makes a grand statement of the Bible's relationship to economic concerns. According to biblical faith, Yahweh is Lord of all things. He is the sovereign Lord of history. Economics is not a neutral, secular sphere independent of his lordship. Economic activity, like every other area of life, should be subject to his will and revelation. Thus, if God is lord of economics, and if that field is subject to his will and revelation, we might assume that God's laws regarding economics are binding, at least as far as Sider and his associates are concerned. This admiral admirable declaration of God's lordship, however, dissolves into mere rhetoric when considered in the light of, of Sider's operating principle of antinomianism, anti-lawism. After asking what kind of structural change Christians should work for, he says, the Bible does not directly answer these questions. We do not find a comprehensive blueprint for a new economic order in Scripture. This, of course, means that Sider is free to devise his own blueprint while using vague biblical principles to justify his thesis to the Christian community. Sider's blueprint calls for socialistic redistribution of wealth and government intervention, a blueprint not countenanced by Scripture, but which Sider claims to find in the fact that biblical revelation tells us that God and his faithful people are always at work liberating the oppressed and also provides 
some principles apropos of justice in society. In plain translation, where the Bible is specific on economic issues, it is not valid. Where the Bible states a general principle that can be redefined in terms of liberationist specifics, it is valid. In Sider's hands, the Bible becomes no more than a ventriloquist dummy. Or, to put it another way, the hands are Esau's hands, but the voice is the voice of Jacob. Sider's thesis feels biblical on the surface, but the voice is the voice of Ronald Sider. Detailed documentation of this charge will appear in the following chapters. For the present, we will examine an outline of the biblical laws on economics and government. There is a comprehensive blueprint for economics in Scripture, but it is not the kind Sider wishes to implement. Therefore, he has to deny that such a blueprint exists. God's Blueprint, Biblical Law Christian economics begins with God the Creator, who created heaven and the things in it, and the earth and the things in it, and the sea and the things in it. Revelation 10.6 As Creator, God is supreme Lord of His workmanship. No aspect of reality is autonomous or neutral. Everything is completely subject to His commands. What we call physical laws, such as gravity, photosynthesis, and the principles of thermodynamics, are simply the outworkings of God's eternal decree and continual providence. And the same is true of economic laws. You may, as one man did, write to Congress and request that our legislators repeal the law of supply and demand. But it is God's law, not subject to human control. The world runs according to God's principles. Man, whether individual anarchist or totalitarian state, cannot transgress God's laws without suffering the preordained consequences in this life and the next. If you defy God's law of gravity, you will go splat. If the state defies God's law of honest money, the economy will go splat. The Bible tells us that God's law is the foundation of wisdom, and that we will be wise to, to the precise extent that we submit to him and his law. Deuteronomy 4, 6, Psalm 19, 7, Psalm 119, 98, Proverbs 9, verse 10, 21, verse 30, and 28, verse 7. Wisdom is the ability to apply the principle of God's law to these specific issues in life, such things as, for instance, justice and equity, Proverbs 1, verse 3, and 2, verse 9. The book of Proverbs is preeminently the book of wisdom. It consists of practical applications of biblical law to precise cases in life. The first third of this legal commentary is one lengthy exhortation to get wisdom. From various perspectives, Solomon urges the importance of understanding the law as it relates to the concrete problems we face in the world. Yet, on two occasions, Solomon interrupts his discourse with what might seem to be an irrelevant digression. He suddenly starts talking about God's creation of the universe, Proverbs 3, 19 and 20, and Proverbs 8, 22 30 through 31. 
Of course, Solomon never really changed the subject at all. His point in both digressions is that the Lord by wisdom hath founded the earth, that the same God who is Lord of the physical universe has established laws in justice and economics that are as absolute and irrevocable as the laws of physics, and that to get along in this world, you may engage in economic fraud with the same assurance of success you would have in jumping from an airplane without a parachute. Success in any area of life comes from wisdom, conformity to the Creator's law. Joshua 1 verse 8. Man's ethical rebellion against God, therefore, inflicted disaster upon his every activity and relationship. The essence of the sin in the garden, and ever since, was man's attempt to be his own God to set up his own standard in place of God's command. You will be like God, the tempter promised, knowing good and evil. And how does God know good and evil? Not by referring to some external standard of justice. For God, there is no external standard. He is the standard. He knows the difference between good and evil by simply determining it. His law alone is the yardstick of right and wrong. And that was the privilege coveted by Adam and Eve. They wanted to know good and evil, not by submitting to the external standard of justice provided by God's commands, but by usurping the prerogatives of deity, determining for themselves the difference between right and wrong. As the Apostle John succinctly stated it, sin is lawlessness, 1 John 3 verse 4. Wait a minute, you say, isn't that legalism? Didn't Jesus and the apostles declare that we are free from all those Old Testament regulations? <clears throat> it would really be fair to reply that the strictest adherence to Old Testament law allows for much more freedom than do the more enlightened stipulations of our benevolent despots in the federal bureaucracy. That issue will be temporarily shelved, and I'll answer your questions directly. No. Let's begin with a working definition of legalism. Legalism cannot be defined simply as rigorous obedience to the law. After all, Jesus obeyed the law fully, in its most exacting details, and he certainly was no legalist. The true legalist is the person who subscribes to one or more of the following heresies, ideas which are roundly condemned in Scripture. 1. Justification by works. This is the most critical aspect of the legalistic faith. It was abhorred and refuted by the writers of both Old and New Testaments. We must note here that no one, not even in the days of Moses, was ever justified by his own works. The only basis of salvation is the finished work of Jesus Christ in fully satisfying the demands of God's law and suffering its penalties in the place of all his people. The view that God accepts us as his children because of our own works is completely at odds with the teachings of Scripture. One who is a legalist in this sense 
is certainly not an orthodox Christian. 2. The requirement of obedience to Old Testament ceremonial laws. Before Christ came, God's people were required to observe certain ceremonies, sacrifices, feasts, and so forth which symbolically portrayed the way of restoration to God's favor. These received their completion in Jesus Christ and are no longer literally binding upon us. There is a very real sense, of course, in which we still keep these laws. Jesus Christ is our priest. He is our sacrificial atonement. And we cannot approach God apart from him. Thus, in their real meaning, all these laws are observed by all Christians. But consider what a literal observance of these laws would mean, now that Christ has fulfilled these shadows. If you were to sacrifice a lamb today, you would be saying, in effect, that Christ's atonement on the cross was insufficient, that you need an additional sacrifice to be accepted with God. That is heresy. Before the coming of Christ, observance of the ceremonial law was obedience. After his death and resurrection, it is disobedience. The false teachers opposed by Paul in Galatians held to both of these aspects of legalism, salvation by works, and the requirement of Old Testament ceremonies. 3. A third form of legalism is addressed in Romans 14 and Colossians 2, the requirement of obedience to man-made regulations. The Galatian legalist at least may be commended for his insistence upon biblical regulations. They were very wrong, but their standards were derived from the scripture. But Paul also had to contend with a host of regulations which originated from mere human prejudice and which some Christians attempted to impose upon others. Touch not, taste not, handle not, they demanded, when God had said nothing of the kind. There are many matters of individual conscience, taste, and idiosyncrasy which should remain so. But we are all dictators at heart, and we often like nothing better than to force others to submit to our eccentricities. It is in this case that Ronald Sider is a legalist. He comes very close, without going over the brink in many of his actual statements, to making requirements out of all sorts of non-biblical standards. According to him, Christians should live simply, eat less meat and no bananas, oppose production of liquor, and give away all income above what is required for bare necessities. Does the Bible say one word about any of this? No, which is not to suggest that we must be heavy meat and banana eaters, since that isn't commanded either. The point is that we must never uphold as more Christian a standard that is not based on clear scriptural grounds. Still less should we urge Christians, as Cider does, to support governmental taxation and redistribution programs which are in specific violation of God's commands. 
4. Another form of legalism, of which Cider is also guilty, is confusion of sins with civil crimes. There are many things the Bible condemns as sins for which there is no civil penalty attached. For example, God certainly regards unjust hatred as a form of murder. Yet while he commanded that the murderer be executed, he made no such stipulation for the sin of unjust hatred. In the same way, God's word condemns the slave mentality of gluttonous consumption as a sin. Yet it mentions no civil penalties or tax incentives against it. But Ronald Sider wants the structure of public policy altered to make gluttony a crime, or at least as much more costly a must, must, much more costly practice than a free market would provide. Again, it is a sin to ignore the legitimate needs of immigrants, and God threatens to destroy a nation that neglects strangers. But the Bible mandates no civil penalties for committing such a sin. In other words, some things are reserved for God's providential judgments in history and for the final judgment, when the very thoughts and intentions of the heart will come under severe scrutiny to be dealt with according to strict justice. It is surely wrong for a nation to mandate any unbiblical legal structures which discriminate against certain races. But it is also wrong for a nation to legislate against discrimination, even if that discrimination is sinful, unless it is a violation of biblical laws in the area of civil justice. For instance, the government must not force blacks to ride in the back of a bus. But biblically, it is just as wrong to force a bus company to integrate its passengers. Neither option is allowable in terms of scripture. Where God has not provided examples of legislation, we may not legislate. To do so is legalism. It is interesting to note that while Sider is quite anxious to legislate where God has not spoken, he is also anxious to do away with biblical penalties for such crimes as adultery and homosexuality, revealing the basic motive of legalism, antinomianism. The antinomian is opposed to the authority of God in human affairs. While he may cloak his humanism in a garb of extreme religiosity, as did the Pharisees, or radical Christianity, his primary goal is to abolish God's law and replace it with his own laws. He wants to be like God, knowing good and evil. On the surface, antinomianism and legalism appear to be diametrically opposed. In reality, they are both rooted in the sinful attempt to dethrone God. Law and the New Testament What does the New Testament say about the validity of the Old Testament law? It is often assumed that Christ's death and resurrection have freed us from any obligation to keep the law. And in the sense of justification, that is certainly true. Because of Christ's finished work, no believer is under the law's condemnation. 
our obligations have been fully met by our Lord. But that was true of the Old Testament believers as well. Abraham and David, for instance, were justified by God's grace through faith, just as we are. Romans 4, 1 through 8. Therefore, justification by faith cannot be claimed as a basis for rejecting the law's demands. Since the Old Testament believers who were told to keep the law were justified by faith, just as we are. The Teaching of Christ Any examination of the New Testament teaching on law must begin with Jesus Christ's declaration of his relationship to the law and the law's continuing requirements for his disciples. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law, until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments, and so teaches others, shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 5, 17 through 20. <clears throat> First, Jesus says he came to fulfill the law. What does fulfill mean? Perhaps the grossest misunderstanding of this is the idea that he meant to replace or to put an end to the law. That is specifically denied here. Do not think that I came to abolish the law. In no way was it Christ's intention to invalidate or repeal the law, nor did he intend to add to or to perfect the law, for it was already perfect. Psalm 19.7 Romans 7, verse 12. Some have thought that our Lord added a more spiritual or inward dimension to the external demands of the law, but that cannot be the case either. The Old Testament already commanded internal obedience. Deuteronomy 6, 5 through 6, Psalm 51, verse 10. Now, it is true that the Pharisees had perverted the law by focusing on external obedience. As we shall see, they weren't even consistent in that. And Jesus plainly condemned them for distorting the law in this way. But this was merely to restore a proper understanding of the true nature of the law. It does not explain how Jesus planned to fulfill the law. Another interpretation has held that Jesus was speaking of his own fulfilling of the law by obeying it himself. <clears throat> While it is true that Jesus did obey the law's demands fully, that is not what he is saying here. The context shows that he was using this statement as a basis for teaching others to obey the law. Not one word regarding his own obedience is mentioned in this entire passage. Rather, he enforces upon his hearers their duty to obey the law. 
The only possible meaning of fulfill here, supported by the passage itself, is that Jesus came to fully confirm and establish the continuing validity of the Old Testament law for his people. Christ's confirmation of the law, moreover, includes the law's most minute details. <clears throat> Not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law. Even the smallest points of the law are valid until heaven and earth pass away. Jesus did not want the law altered by so much as a tiny stroke. Let us remember this is our Lord speaking, and we as his followers must obey him. If you love me, he said, you will keep my commandments. He who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. John 14, 15, and 21. Christians must be concerned to obey even the smallest details of the law. Not to earn acceptance with God, Christ earned that for us, but because our Savior commands us to obey. Every single stroke of the law is applicable in this age until the end of the world. Jesus goes on to underscore the importance of obedience. He tells us that God is displeased when we break even the least of these commandments, and teaching others to break them makes God angry as well. The law of God is our standard for godly living. Holiness and righteousness are constantly defined by Scripture in terms of the law. In fact, justice, mercy, and faithfulness are impossible apart from God's law. Matthew 23, 23. If we are faithful to the details of the law, Jesus says that our righteousness will exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. Contrary to popular myth, the Pharisees did not observe the law. While they claimed to be teachers of the law, in reality they were hypocrites. They taught legalism, upholding justification by their own works, and antinomianism, replacing God's law with the legalistic traditions of men. At every point in his conflicts with the Pharisees, Jesus stood for the law against their perversions of it. For example, Matthew 12, 1-14, 15, 1-20, 19, 1-9, 23, 1-39. By perverting the law, the scribes and Pharisees demonstrated their rebellion against God's authority. Therefore, they were not members of the kingdom. In his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus never criticized the law as such, but the Pharisaic perversion of the law instead. Not once did he oppose what was written, the smallest letter or stroke of the law itself. Rather, he contradicted what was said in the traditions of the elders, which were contrary to God's genuine law. See, for example, Matthew 5, 21, 27, 33, 38, 43, Matthew 15, 3, 6, and 9. 
In all these statements, Jesus did not add to or subtract from the law, but established its full meaning, that the way of righteousness lies in determined obedience to the most minute details of God's law. Emphasizing the awesome seriousness of this fact, Jesus closed the sermon by pointing out why many professing Christians will be damned at the last day. I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Matthew 7:23. Christ clearly saw faith and obedience as united. A man's true faith is revealed by his practice. His observance of Christ's sayings, Matthew 7:24, including of course his sayings about observing the minutest details of the law. Throughout his ministry, Jesus Christ presented himself as both Savior and Lord. And just as we must not attempt to be our own saviors by legalistic faith in our own works, so we must not attempt to be our own lords by an antinomian practice of Christian living that is separated from the requirements of God's holy law. The Teaching of the Apostles The most systematic analysis of the Christian's relationship to the law is found in the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans. The first several chapters deal with our guilt before God's law and the provision of complete justification for the believer through the finished work of Christ. All that the law demands for acceptance with God has been perfectly satisfied by our substitute. We are identified with him in his full payment for sin, so that as far as the law's penalty is concerned, we legally died with Christ. Romans 6 verse 8. In Christ we have received the full penalty of the law, because he endured its curse in our place. No longer are we under law and its condemnation. Rather, we have been placed under grace as our means of justification. For this reason, sin cannot have dominion over us. Romans 6.14 The believer has been freed from his slavery to sin and is now enslaved to righteousness. 6.17 But since righteousness is defined in terms of God's law, this means that the believer now fulfills the righteous requirements of the law. 8 verse 4. He does not live according to sinful principles, but according to the Spirit. How do we know what the Spirit wants us to do? Simply by referring to the law which he authored. The law is spiritual. Romans 7:14 which doesn't mean that the law is otherworldly or non-physical but that it is from the holy spirit the law is holy and just and good Romans 7:12 it is our continuing standard of right living in every area some hold that the christian is not motivated by considerations of law but by love instead This is to place an unbiblical distinction between law and love, a distinction opposed by the apostles. Love, said Paul, 
is the fulfillment of the law. Romans 13.10. This is the love of God that we keep his commandments. John wrote in 1 John 5.3. The standard of love is nothing other than the law of God. If we are disobedient to the law of God, we do not love. Conversely, if we do not love, we are breaking the law which commands love. If in the name of love for the poor, I transgress God's law by supporting legal plunder of my rich neighbor to fund a poverty program, I am not really loving regardless of my profession. For love is always concerned to fulfill the law of God. Where that concern is absent, love does not exist. In fact, obedience to God's law is the mark of genuine Christianity. Disobedience to the law of God is the sign that we do not have a relationship to God at all. By this we know that we have come to know him. If we keep his commandments, the one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments, is a liar and the truth is not in him. 1 John 2, 3 and 4. It, may be, it might be argued at this point that the apostles do oppose the Old Testament law in certain sections of their writings. A superficial reading of Galatians, for instance, would seem to substantiate such an idea. But this interpretation overlooks Paul's thesis in writing the book. First, he was denying the legalistic heresy that our obedience to law is the condition of our justification. A man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Galatians 2.16 In withstanding legalism, Paul was not objecting to the law itself, but to a perversion of the law, a perversion that is not countenanced in either testament. Second, Paul wrote in opposition to ceremonialism, the teaching that the observance of Old Testament ceremonies was still binding on believers and, in fact, necessary for salvation. He chided the Galatians for observing ceremonial days and months and seasons and years, Galatians 4.10, and for being circumcised in the attempt to be justified by law, Galatians 5.2 and 4. It is most significant that when the apostles speak of our freedom, from certain Old Testament regulations, they cite only ceremonial laws, such as sacrifices, priesthood, circumcision, and feast, which pictorially represented the mediatorial work of Christ until he came. For example, no New Testament text condemns the practice of restitution. And in fact, Jesus pronounced Zac Zacchaeus to be saved after he demonstrated his willingness to obey this detail of the law. No New Testament text can be used to support unlawful practices of homosexuality, usury, or debasement of currency. These are all aspects of God's abiding moral law, and not one, one word of Scripture alters their force. Both Testaments distinguish between laws that were ceremonial and thus merely temporary and those laws which were moral. The moral law is the abiding definition of sin and righteousness. Romans 3.20, 1 
7, verse 7, 1 John 3, 4. The ceremonial regulations, on the other hand, symbolically represented the means of restoration of God's favor through the mediator who was to come, Hebrews 7, 10. The moral law answers the question, how should I live? The ceremonial law symbolically answers the question, how can I be restored to God's favor after breaking his moral law? Thus, the Old Testament writers were aware of the crucial difference between obedience on the one hand, observance of God's requirement of justice, mercy, and faithfulness in every area of life, and sacrifice on the other hand observance of the ceremonies, which symbolized restoration. This distinction was much more clearly revealed in the New Testament, of course, since it was written after the symbols had met their fulfillment in Christ. For example, Romans 2, 28 and 29, Philippians 3, 2 and 3, Colossians 2, 11 through 14. But the distinction was also understood in the Old Testament. Isaiah 1, 11 through 23, Hosea 6, verse 6, Amos 5, 21 through 26, Micah 6, 6 through 8. The ceremonial law was never intended to be a permanent feature of the duty of believers. But the moral law has lasting validity. God has not surrendered his authority in any area of life, in the family, education, government, economics, science, the arts, and everything else. He is always Lord. His commandments for righteous living by the individual, the community, social institutions, and departments of government have not been altered. Their relevance and authority will remain until heaven and earth pass away. God's Law and the State In some ways, this section is the most important part of the book. A great deal of what I will say in later chapters will simply expand on the doctrines presented here. This is because Ronald Sider's assumptions about the role of the state underlie much of his argument. If Mr. Sider had agreed with the biblical view of the responsibilities and limits of civil government, his book would be the size of a small pamphlet. He would have had very little to say. The basic outline of the duties of civil government is found in Romans 13, verse 4. Paul tells us that the civil authority is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. Every civil ruler, Paul says, has an obligation to be God's minister. In other words, he must administer the word of God in his sphere of authority. To the extent that he fails to do this, he is an unfaithful minister. Just as any pastor would be an unfaithful minister of the gospel if he failed to apply God's word to his congregation. 
Jesus Christ is Lord of all rulers, in heaven and in earth. Ephesians 1, 20-22 And all rulers are commanded to submit to his lordship or be destroyed. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, lest he become angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Psalm 2, 10 through 12. God's minister, the ruler, has two responsibilities, both of which are mentioned in Romans 13. He must do good. What is good? Is God's minister of justice free to decide that for himself? If so, he cannot condemn anything that rulers have done in the past. Hitler regarded the extermination of Jews as good. Nero thought it was a good idea to tax his citizens in order to fund his private orgies and public slaughters. Obviously, we could go on and on. Public health care, minimum wage laws, and state-financed education may all seem good to us, but how can we be sure? There is only one way. We must go, as Isaiah said, to the law and to the testimony. God's law is holy, righteous, and good. Romans 7, 12, Matthew 23, 23. If God's ministers in the state are faithful, they will go to God's Old Testament laws to find out what they should do. Any standard of goodness which is not based on the law of God is not good. It is mere humanism. A state that departs from God's standard is engaged in a vain and cursed attempt to deify itself. 2. He must punish evildoers. What is an evildoer? Again, we must ask, is the ruler free to decide the answer for himself? To answer yes is to give a despot a blank check for statist absolutism. He may decide that all babies in Bethlehem are evildoers, for instance. King Herod was only just doing his his job, therefore, when he ordered the murder of the infants in Bethlehem, Matthew 2.16. Clearly, God has given rulers the power of the sword. Obviously, they are supposed to execute somebody. (coughs) But who? If your answer is based on anything but God's law, I repeat, you've just handed the state a blank check. And God's civil minister just might add you to to his hit list. But that's not the end of the problem. Once you have decided who is to be punished, another question arises. What is the appropriate penalty for a particular crime? Should a petty thief be hanged? Should a rapist be forced to stand in a corner? Should the entire Federal Reserve Board be flogged? Again, the answers to these questions must be sought from God's law. The ruler must study God's standard of justice for the exercise of his ministry. Deuteronomy 17, 18 through 20. And as Jesus pointed out, justice is defined by Old Testament law. If we discard the law, we are left to wander aimlessly 
with no basis for justice, no means of recognizing it, and no principles with which to apply it. Without God's law, we have nothing but the justice of autonomous, rebellious humanism, which is to say, injustice. Conservatives and libertarians are fond of talking about the rule of law. But if it is not the rule of God's law, it is nothing but anarchy, the rule of lawlessness. God's commandments state precisely the responsibilities and limits of the state. And built into the law is a strict constructionist interpretation. The ruler may not turn aside from the commandment to the right or to the left. Deuteronomy 17 verse 20. The ruler is a minister of God, not an advisor or legislator. His responsibility is to do all that God commands, and only what God commands, to do more or less, to turn to the right or to the left, is to deny the crown rights of King Jesus. The ruler is a man under authority, and his rule must reflect the revealed justice of God. He must steadfastly resist the perennial suggestions of the tempter. Has God said, you shall surely die? You will be like God. God's Law and Economics Although Sider is fond of repeating his notion that the Bible does not contain a blueprint for economics, the fact is that the Bible tells us a great deal about the subject of economics. Much of the biblical teaching on economics will be seen in later chapters, but a summary of basic principles will be helpful at this point. Property As I have already noted, we must begin with God as creator and owner of all things. The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. Psalm 24.1 Cider strongly hints that this verse involves a repudiation of private property and laissez-faire economics, giving governments the right to redistribute wealth and enforce sharing. But the point of the biblical emphasis on God's ownership is that all property must be held in strict accordance with his commands. His commands do not allow for government redistribution of wealth. Property will always be owned. If we take it away from individuals and families, it will be owned by the government's redistributive agency. It is true that I do not have an absolute right to my property, nor do I have an absolute right to dispose of my wife and children as I see fit. Everything I have must be owned in terms of God's requirements. But to acknowledge the limits on my use of my property is very different from asserting that the government or the poor are free to transgress God's laws regarding the same property. Sider seems very concerned to make sure property owners stay within their biblical limits. Actually, he goes much further than that, but let's give him the benefit of the doubt for a moment. It is striking that he does not manifest a similar concern that civil government not transgress its divinely ordained limits. 
God's ownership of the land is a limitation on absolute ownership by anyone. The biggest single offender against God's ownership of property in this century is the very civil government to which Sider wishes to give more power. Civil government in the United States, in direct violation of biblical law, owns all the land in the country and rents some of it out to its citizens. If you don't pay the property tax rent, you will be evicted. This is theft. The government has no right whatsoever to tax property. And the practice of eminent domain is a claim to deity. It is specifically forbidden in Scripture. 1 Samuel 8, 14, 1 Kings 21, Ezekiel 46, 18. God's total ownership is the basis of our limited ownership as his stewards. Thus, half of the Ten Commandments are are prohibitions against theft. I must not rob my neighbor of his life, his wife, his property, or his reputation, nor may, may I covet anything that belongs to him. This has direct relevance to the Cider thesis. For while he pays lip service to the rights of property, Cider actually encourages coveting and theft. Private property is legitimate, but since God is the only absolute owner, our right to acquire and use property is definitely limited. The human right to the resources necessary to earn a just living overrides any notion of absolute private ownership. In terms of this, Cider calls for a national state food policy, state-to-state foreign aid, a guaranteed national income, international taxation, land reform, Uh, for example, expropriation of lands from the rich, bureaucratically determined just prices, national health care, population control, and the right of developing nations to nationalize foreign holdings, all of which involve theft of one sort or another. Insider's Robin Hood theology, loving my neighbor means robbing my rich neighbor. This is not to suggest that the rich have no responsibility to help the poor but it does mean that the poor have a responsibility not to steal from the rich. You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor defer to the great, but you are to judge your neighbor fairly. Leviticus 19.15 Which does not mean Karl Marx's definition of a fair distribution of wealth, but rather according to the standard of God's law. Any judgment of man on the basis of his property or his lack of it is theft. In attempting to justify covetousness and theft in the name of God's ownership, Ronald Sider has committed blasphemy. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Isaiah 5 verse 20. Work and Dominion The biblical method of attaining dominion is through diligent work. 
When Adam rebelled, he chose instead to have dominion by playing God, rejecting God's leadership over him. He wanted power over the creation, but not legitimately through God-ordained work, but by becoming his own God. The world doesn't work that way, of course. And man was driven into slavery, losing dominion. But sinful men still seek power outside of the pattern God has commanded. The envious do not want to take the time and energy to get wealth by godly diligence. Rather, they want to plunder and destroy those above them. George Reisman correctly observes, The essential fact to grasp about socialism is that it is simply an act of destruction. It destroys private ownership and the profit motive. And that is essentially all it does. It has nothing to put in their place. Socialism, in other words, is not actually an alternative economic system to private ownership of the means of production. It is merely a negation of the system based on private ownership. Scripture is insistent in its demand for diligent hard work in our task. Constantly, we're told that this is the means of dominion. A few samples from the book of Proverbs. Ill-gotten gains do not profit, but righteousness delivers from death. The Lord will not allow the righteous to hunger, but he will thrust aside the craving of the wicked. Poor is he who works with a negligent hand, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. Proverbs 10 Two through four. He who tills his land will have plenty of bread. The hand of the diligent will rule, but the slack hand will be put to forced labor. Proverbs twelve one and twenty four. The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, but the soul of the diligent is made fat. Wealth obtained by fraud dwindles, but the one who gathers by labor increases it. Proverbs 13, 4 and 11. It might be objected that this is simply another version of let them eat cake, that it does not that it does nothing to wrest power from the ungodly, but this is not the case. The Bible teaches the paradoxical truth that power flows to those who work and serve. The industrious meek shall inherit the earth. We are not to fret nor be anxious toward evildoers but to trust in the Lord and do good. See all of Psalm 37. God gives the power to get wealth. Deuteronomy 8 verse 18. And he gives it to the diligent workers in his kingdom. And calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, You know that those who are recognized rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them, but it is not so among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Mark 10, 42-45 Even powerful statist oppression will be overcome, not by revolution, but by godly dominion in the sphere of work as God showed the prophet Zechariah during a period of ungodly status domination. 
Then I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, there were four horns. So I said to the angel who was speaking with me, What are these? And he answered me, These are the horns which have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen, and I said, What are these coming to do? And he said, These are the horns which have scattered Judah, so that no man lifts up his head. But these craftsmen have come to terrify them, to throw down the horns of the nations, who have lifted up their horns against the hand, the land of Judah, in order to scatter it. Zechariah 1, 18-21 The earthly victory of God's people will come about through diligent work. Ungodly powers must and shall fall through the daily work and prayer of the godly. Like the spider in Proverbs 30, 28, if we take hold with our hands, we will someday find ourselves in the palaces of kings. But scripture never countenances the idea that we are to attain dominion by demanding our fair share of resources owned by others, or by using governmental coercion to redistribute wealth. We must encourage ourselves and each other to labor diligently in obedience to God's commands in the confident expectation that God will honor his promises, that we and our seed will inherit God's blessings, God's good blessings in this life and the next. The reason for Western prosperity is not accidental. It is the direct outgrowth of the Puritan ethic, which involved diligent labor saving, investment, and the philosophy of free enterprise and initiative. God's law clearly promises external blessings in response to external obedience. This is the function of prophets. They are the sign of success in serving the wants of consumers. Prophets are possible because of the biblical principle of dominion through service. The efficient, least wasteful producer receives the greatest return. The moment he turns from serving the public, his profit will disappear because the consumers will take their business elsewhere. The consumers always, always decide which producer will get the profits. Now, it is true that some of the bigness of big business has been made possible by unbiblical government subsidy and protectionism. But apart from such ungodly activity, the characteristic feature of big business is efficient mass production for the needs of the public. The more efficient a producer is, the more profit he earns, and consequently he is able to exert even more influence upon business, which is at, as it should be. The control of production is in the hands of those who are the best in serving consumers. Thus, as Ludwig von Mises observed, the standard of living of the common man is highest in those countries which have the greatest number of wealthy entrepreneurs. It is the foremost material interest of everybody to con that control of the factors of production should be concentrated in the hands of those who know how to utilize them in the most efficient way. Exchange. The nature of biblical free enterprise and exchange can perhaps be best understood 
by examining it in contrast with the popular con game that resurfaces occasionally, known as the pyramid plan. The idea here is to recruit a number of people under you in successive levels, each of whom pays $1,000 for the privilege of joining the game. The money is divided between you and the person at the next level above you, so that by the time you have recruited 62 suckers, you have won $16,000. In the summer of 1980, the craze swept Southern California into a mad frenzy of pyramid playing. Virtually every non-Christian I knew was involved in it, greedily swallowing the ridiculous promise of the promoters. We've worked out a way for everyone to win, a plain mathematical impossibility, a plain mathematical impossibility unless it can be proven that dollar bills can mate and reproduce as long as they are properly introduced. Presumably it helps if this is done in a house full of people with IQ set firmly at room temperature. Astonishingly, this experiment in collective greed was touted as a business, as free enterprise, and as an investment. Nothing could be further from the truth. Biblical free enterprise increases the wealth of society as a whole. Both the producer and the consumer are enriched by any exchange. Investment means putting capital to work. It aims at increased productivity and thereby benefits all, not just the investor. A true investment, meaning a non-fraudulent investment, in fact, cannot benefit the investor without benefiting others. A pyramid game cannot increase wealth. It can only transfer wealth by fraud. It is gambling, not production. Our purpose in life is not to become wealthy, but to serve God and our neighbor. God gives us the power to get wealth, but not exclusively for our own sakes. Wealth is given for the purpose of dominion. Under biblical law, wealth ultimately passes to those who are exercising dominion under God and who are thereby increasing the earth's productivity for his glory. God's law demands that we work and produce and promises that God will bless us for it. But again, our gain is not for ourselves alone, but for the glory of God. Thus, we are to work for the good of others, as well as for ourselves. A basic rule in economics was stated by Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount. Therefore, whatever you want others to do for you, do for them. For this is the law and the prophets. Matthew 7, verse 12. As the Puritans observed in the Westminster Catechism, this is also the meaning of the commandment against stealing. The Eighth Commandment requireth the lawful procuring and furthering of the wealth and outward estate of ourselves and others. In other words, biblical exchange prohibits fraud and coercion in the marketplace. The Bible does not set up a so-called just price. Rather, the Bible establishes the conditions for a free market. In biblical capitalism, the seller does not rip off the buyer. Instead, he produces something for the other's benefit, and society as a whole is enriched. I am not speaking of innately immoral transactions, transactions such as heroin sales. 
It is often felt that the only way to make a profit is at someone else's expense. That is the principle behind pyramid games in which the entrepreneur gets his investors to give up their wealth for his benefit, giving nothing in return, producing nothing but poverty. It was also the basis for 18th century mercantilism, as it is now the basis for modern policies of inflation, collective bargaining, and protectionism. But the amazing fact of a truly biblical free market economy is that everyone makes a profit. How can this be? The answer is in the nature of the exchange. Where a true marketplace exists, where there is no fraud or coercion, this is what happens. Each party to a transaction exchanges something that is less desirable to him for something that is more desirable to him. He values the seller's goods more highly than he values his own. When you exchange money for, say, a pair of shoes, it is because you you would rather have the shoes than the money. The shoes are more valuable to you than the money you give in exchange. On the other hand, the shoe salesman would rather have your money than the shoes. Thus, the result of any free exchange is that both parties make a profit. Neither one makes a profit at the other's expense. Both parties come away from the transaction wealthier than when they entered it, because each one now has something more valuable to him than he had before. The Golden Rule, which expresses the teaching of the Old Testament Law and Prophets, sets the conditions for a free exchange of goods by prohibiting fraud and coercion, and the consequence of free exchange is the increased wealth of society as a whole. Money Throughout the Bible, money is spoken of by weight. The law specifically commands that financial transactions be made in terms of honest measurements of weight. You should do no wrong in judgment in measurement of weight or capacity. You shall have just balances, just weights, a just epa, and just and a just hen. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. You shall thus observe all my statutes and all my ordinances and do them. I am the Lord. Leviticus 19, 35-37. Historically and biblically, gold and silver in particular have served as money. The important thing to remember is that money is a commodity in itself. Gold and silver emerged as media of exchange precisely because they have always been the most marketable goods. In other words, they can easily be exchanged again and again for other commodities. Money is not a measurement of value. There can be no measure of value or of wealth. Money does not represent wealth. Money is a commodity, a good, a form of wealth. Dishonest governments have always hated this fact because it prevents them from controlling money and society. Hard money is a strict limitation on a government's ability to grow beyond biblical boundaries. For this reason, governments have sought to have a monopoly as the sole suppliers and regulators of currency. This enables governments to go into the counterfeiting business, whereby it can debase the currency 
by mixing the honest gold and silver weight with dross and thus create as much money as it needs. This has happened again and again and again in history. It is forbidden by the law. As in the passage cited above, see also Proverbs 11 verse 1, 20 verse 10, and 23. And in the prophets, Isaiah 1, 22, Amos 8, 5 and 6, Micah 6, 10 through 12. This is an absolute biblical prohibition against inflation, which is a dishonest increase in the supply of money. Counterfeiting is condemned by Scripture, no matter whether it is done by individuals or governments. Inflating the currency is theft, for it reduces the wealth of everyone who does not have access to the new money. Price increases, prices rise, in response to the addition of new currency, and those who are at la- who are last in getting the newly created money inevitably lose. With the rise of paper money and later of computers, governmental creation of money became much more sophisticated. By means of printing presses and electronic blips, inflation can speed can speed right along with little to impede its progress. The government spends money, stolen from taxpayers and inflation victims, on projects which are biblically forbidden. And the beneficiaries of inflation, debtors, and those who receive government checks, while they complain about the effects of inflation and higher prices, nevertheless greedily consume the leeks and the onions and the garlic dispensed by the lawless largesse of an omnipotent enslaving state. Perhaps more than any other single factor, it is the willful government policy of inflation, aided and abetted by the citizens' covetousness, that causes poverty and unemployment. In light of this, it is striking that much of Ron Sider's proposed remedy for poverty can only be funded by theft through unjust taxation or inflation. Citizens of affluent nations, he says, should demand that their government pay the price for all these marvelous programs. But how do governments pay for anything? There are only two ways, taxation and inflation. Thus, Sider is really demanding that his neighbors pay the price, not voluntarily, but by being plundered. This is Robin Hood theology, with a dangerous twist, King John and the Sheriff of Nottingham backing the thieves with legal force. The state robs from the rich and gives to the poor minus 30% for administration. The Bible does, of course, allow for some government taxation, but not much. The specific form of taxation, head tax, income tax, or whatever, is relatively unimportant and is not set forth in Scripture. What is important is the rate of taxation, which determines the size of the state. As an absolute outside limit, any tax of 10% or more is specifically regarded by Scripture as tyranny, an attempt by rulers to be like God, extracting a tithe, 1 Samuel 8, 15, and 17. See what I mean about limited government? 
there's no way such a tax could possibly support a massive power state and certainly the kind of omnipotent paternalism envisioned by Sider would be out of the question. In summary, Ronald Sider, with varying degrees of accuracy, has pinpointed certain problems regarding poverty in our age. But almost without exception, his proposals for solving these problems are unbiblical to the core. It is not difficult to find scriptural proof for the assertion that we should do something about the poor. But that alone does not guarantee that our solutions will be biblical in the slightest. We must follow through with the Bible's answers in concrete applications of biblical law. And that is exactly what Mr. Sider consistently refuses to do. Talk about justice is cheap. The Pharisees did it all the time. They chattered around the periphery of biblical law, taking the smorgasbord approach of picking and choosing laws they liked, but the Lord Jesus condemned them for abandoning the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness, Matthew 23:23. Ronald Sider has made the same deadly error. He has forsaken the only standard of justice and mercy, the sole blueprint for a just social order. He has substituted his own outline of social justice, an outline which more closely resembles Marx's Communist Manifesto than it does the Book of Deuteronomy. He has called for dozens of interventionist and socialist programs, which Scripture specifically forbids. He seems to assume that envy is a virtue. He writes of social problems, not in terms of sin, but of class war and hatred. He opposes biblical ethical standards. He specifically teaches others to break God's commandments with regard to personal and social moral issues. He has done all of this in the name of God. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows. Or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His Kingdom.